Hello and welcome to White Swan, the podcast that gives you the inside story on how leaders tackle crises. I'm Gavin McGaw, and on this podcast, we aim to furnish you with the learnings behind the headlines so that when the proverbial hits the fan, you can keep things turning. We'll be joined with Phil Marr, uh, formerly of Virgin Atlantic, to talk all things crises in a moment in a fantastic interview. But before that, we're joined by Karen White of National uh, in Canada and Gary Cleland of Hanover in the UK to talk about their experience of crises, but also Phil's interview and some of the learnings from that. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you. Happy to be here. Nice to be here. Now, Phil's interview is fantastic, as you both will know. In it, he talks about uh, how he had to switch to crisis mode in a moment. He was at a ice rink with his son and suddenly got that call about an issue that was going to be front of news, leading news bulletins across the globe. We often get those calls as crisis handlers, as you know, and it's a very sobering moment, isn't it? But how do you handle that and how do your clients handle that? Karen? Yeah, you know, Phil's interview really took me back um, to the day when um, our team was activated for the Fort McMurray wildfires. And for context, this was one of the most expensive disasters in Canadian history at about $10 billion. Huge fire, about 1.5 million acres that were impacted. And so I was at home hosting my family for Mother's and Matriarch's Day, full house, and I get the call. Karen, our team's activated. I need you to pack a bag, bring a sleeping bag, and head out to Western Canada. The city's on lockdown. It's been evacuated. We don't know where we're sleeping. We don't know what we're eating. (laughs) We know nothing, but we just need you to get on a plane and get out here and we'll sort the details when you get here. And so I had been watching this unfold in social media and seeing family members and friends impacted because a lot of people from Eastern Canada actually work in Fort McMurray in the oil patch. And so, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty, but what I tried to do to get myself ready was um, a good situational brief, trying to understand the context, what was happening, reading the social and media analysis, um, trying to get a handle on the structure and where I would be fitting in and supporting the team. Um, And so really, I just head down focused at the task at hand. And, you know, obviously, safety was a consideration. And so had some questions about that. Um, At the time, the air quality, 10 out of 10 is bad. The air quality was a 51 out of 10. And so understanding that they had masks in place that we had to wear inside, outside and sleeping and the other safety protocols, um, you know, was able to go into it eyes wide open in terms of what I was in for. And was that instinctive or was that preparation through training, Karen, which leads you to approach things in that way? Yeah, I think for me, I'm hardwired for crisis. Uh, you know, the crazier and the the more chaotic things get around me, the calmer and clearer I become. And that's a skill set, I think, for a lot of people who practice crisis communications, comes through time and experience. Some people have it naturally. Some people, they learn that muscle memory from experiences over time. But for me, it comes very naturally and where I do my best work, actually. What about you, Gary? I think, I mean, I think uh, Karen touched on a, a number of interesting points there. For, for me, I think when that first call comes, it inevitably feels overwhelming as you're taking in details and trying to figure out how to respond. I think 
you know, the general rule is don't chase the crisis, but but follow the process. My view is, and it's interesting you touch and Gav on instinct versus uh, versus protocol. My view is that certainly in the first, you know, in those first hours uh, of a crisis unfolding, it can be difficult to know exactly how you should respond. And I think that can feel overwhelming. But I think what you do know is that those initial good crisis response is going to be dependent on process, structure, uh, and information. Uh, and so the immediate requirement isn't necessarily to solve the crisis. It's to make sure that you have those steps in place whereby you have the process in place that you know you're going to follow. You have the structure in place about the people who are around the room, and you're able to start getting that information in. And I think Karen and Phil, um, as we'll hear in a second, uh, share you know that almost preternatural calm in that situation. And, and, and I think while some of that will be natural, the ability to be calm in that situation is because, particularly in those opening moments, what you're doing is focusing on the next step ahead, the next step ahead, because you can have confidence if you have the process in place that that's going to get you the information that you need uh, in order to make that decision. I think where often you can see people become a little unstuck is is when they place, I think, a bit too much emphasis on instinct and on their hunch. And sometimes actually what you see in, in a crisis or in a crisis simulation is some of the, the best business leaders outside of a crisis, those guys who do run on instinct and run on their hunch um, and deliver accordingly, can come a bit unstuck in a crisis situation because they try to take that same mentality into that room. And I think as someone who probably naturally isn't, as, as you'll know, tied up on process. One of the big learnings I've had over the past decade um, in crisis comms is, is putting your faith in that process. Now, I think Phil says himself that, you know, no real life situation uh, exactly follows the playbook that you might have to hand. But I think it's a far stronger position to be in. In fact, it's an essential position to be in that you're testing reality against the protocol that you have in place rather than trying to build a protocol as you go while things are unfolding. In Karen's case, a literal wildfire around you and I think you know that's having confidence in that process I think enables you to get into the room and start making the decisions that you need to make. So what I'm hearing is we need a framework and the framework may have to adapt accordingly to fast moving events and be agile but the framework will help guide us and we need to trust that process. Well that's fantastic let's hear from Phil. Each episode of White Swan will feature an in-depth conversation with a senior figure from the world of business, so we get to learn about their crisis experience and the lessons we need to hear. So our first guest on the show is Phil Marr. Phil has been there and done it in the world of aviation. Until very recently, he was a senior figure at Virgin Atlantic. Uh, he was the airline's chief operating officer for 10 years, overseeing thousands of staff and managing a budget of billions. Phil, thank you for joining us on White Swan, the crisis podcast. Gavin, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Phil, what's the story of how you ended up in such a big role at Virgin Atlantic? Well, it goes back a long way, actually, Gavin. Um, as you can probably tell from my accent, I'm Irish, uh, and I grew up in a small rural town in Ireland many, many years ago. And one of the things I learned very early on uh, was the importance of education and the importance of moving forward. We came from a very large family. There was actually 13 siblings. So I've actually got eight brothers and four sisters. And we're all very uh, handsome and good looking, looked like each other. So it's fantastic. But, um, <laughs> but I did learn the need to you know, move myself forward uh, and focus on, on my success. 
and it was all down to me basically to make sure I did move forward. So I made sure I got a very good education. I then joined the uh, Irish Air Corps when I was about 16 uh, as an apprentice engineer uh, and got my qualifications uh, through the Irish Air Corps. Uh, but that wasn't enough. I moved to the UK after about five years and joined a company called Fields Executive Jet, um, which were a private uh, small company managing uh, private jets. It was, again, a fantastic experience. But I decided I needed to do something bigger, and I moved into British Airways. And I joined British Airways about... 1990 and it was the beginning of a fantastic career i did 15 uh, years in, in british airways um, i trained as a manager in british airways as well as an engineer culminating in me actually having a role based in dubai in the middle east where i looked after the engineering operation across the middle east north africa uh, for british airways and at that point i further enhanced my qualifications by doing an mba and that was a fantastic experience really opened up my eyes to the, the world of business I then moved from British Airways to join Virgin Atlantic. I was very excited about the brand. I was very excited about their product. I was very excited about what they were trying to do with uh, premium travel at the time. And I joined their team developing their upper class suite and, and the new uh, in-flight entertainment system. So again, a slightly different departure from what I'd done before, but it was fantastic to get that experience with a great brand, a great company. Uh, and again, I was very fortunate to be able to move through the ranks at, uh, at uh, Virgin Atlantic for over five years, and that kind of culminated me uh, about 10 years ago being the director of engineering for Virgin Atlantic, where I looked after about a thousand engineers and a budget of 850 million pounds and was responsible for everything from uh, purchasing the assets to maintaining the assets. And it was, again, a great experience. We then had a change of leadership actually at Virgin and a new CEO, Craig Krieger, who joined the team. Uh, Craig wanted to, uh, again, inject uh, a new strategy to the business at the time, and, and he, he refocused the team, and he increased my responsibilities from Director of Engineering to Chief Operating Officer and Executive Vice President, where I added uh, a number of different departments to uh, my portfolio that I was managing. So we it went from engineering to include flight operations, uh, airports, uh, cargo, both revenue and handling. Uh, also facilities uh, and crucially the operations center and the business resilience team so we're responsible for uh, you know 24 7 365 operation um, uh, airlines are complex businesses on, my, on a good day so it was always something that required attention and it was a fantastic experience i, I love my time at virgin uh, brilliant people brilliant experience and a fantastic company so i ended up uh, with enormous responsibilities and um, some people often ask me did i plan it i don't think so i just uh, i just took the next opportunity as it came along it's a huge role, Phil, when you hear it put like that. Do you think that there's anything in your upbringing in such a huge family? So small home, huge family leads to chaos in most people's lives. You you had to sort of find a way through that. Do you think there's a link between that and the sort of way you operate now? Yeah, very very possibly. One thing I, I learned was to be uh, resilient and resourceful at all times. We you say we came from a you know a very uh, constrained. Uh, in the background so basically we had to be fast on our feet take opportunities as they came along be resourceful use what you had make decisions with the uh, the best ability and the best resource you had at the time that's that's kind of was a very good grounding for me and served me very well and, and it's something that as i went forward in my career i always found that relative to my, some of my peers i never found myself getting flustered or excited about situations i was very calm because i always knew there's something you can do if even with the most limited resources you can always do something. You can always move the issue forward. So I think it gave me a very good grounding um, and, and a very uh, good ability to make very quick decisions and very sound decisions. It stood me very, very well. One of the other things that I've often reflected on is because of that upbringing, 
and because of where I came from, I find myself very comfortable talking to anybody from a truck driver to a board member. And it's a, it's a great skill to be able to do that and move through an organization and be comfortable talking to people at all levels. Yeah, right. So let's get into the meat of today, which is all about crises, etc. Um, every business faces a multitude of issues every single week. Some of those evolve into more serious crises. And we call this the white swan podcast because we believe that the vast majority of crises are predictable events that uh, rather than the unexpected black swan events, which everyone focuses on uh, when writing about such things, in your opinion and in your experience, what is a crisis? Well, that's a really great question. And I do agree, by the way, that the majority of these issues can be predicted to some level. Um, and there's clearly a difference between a crisis and a normal incident. And let me try and explain to how we managed it uh, for the last number of years. We were very conscious that we had a complex operation and therefore things would escalate and change at times. And we had different levels of, of kind of awareness in the organization. The level two was a normal operation, but something was going wrong and you might, might require some additional resources. A level one was actually, this is now getting a bit more complex. The ops team need more resource to be added to it, perhaps an extra manager, perhaps an extra oversight from, from, a, uh, from somebody who had a specialist role. Um, it then escalated to what we called an amber event. And an amber event was now something that was more complex, involving more people, and it was it was becoming a crisis. It was becoming something that needed much more attention. We'd activate our amber team led by the silver commander. They'd activate a room called the crisis command center. And at that point, you've now moved from that incident to crisis. Now, generally, the vast majority of the issues we dealt with, we had playbooks. We had already thought through the scenarios. What could go wrong? How will we manage it? Those playbooks are never accurate, by the way. They're a great guide. They're a great template to use, but they're never going to reflect the situation you deal with on the day. If that situation then escalated further, so for example, we felt that there was an issue which would now require uh, PR support or additional communication support or something that required the intervention of the leadership team at Virgin, who then activate the, the last level, which was the red alert, and that would be the gold command uh, team being set up. Now, the gold command team separated slightly from the crisis team, and the gold command team was there to step back and take a look at the crisis as it evolved and try and predict what was the risk to the business. Was it a financial risk, a reputational risk? Was it a brand risk? How are we going to protect our customers in the longer term? So it's very much a clear delineation between the tactical response to the crisis and the strategic response to the business. And again, the fantastic issue there is that that plan or that method allowed us to actively look at incidents, escalate them and manage them to the point where there were crisis and have a playbook for each level. And ultimately, that allowed the organization to remain calm and respond to the issue appropriately. So what's the sort of infrastructure behind the scenes for a gold response setup, Phil? Well, gold response setup, uh, if I try and walk you through this visually, let's, let's, let's go back to the crisis team. The crisis team had a separate uh, room. So you had the operations control team, normal 24 hours to seven operations, lots of TV screens, lots of information going backwards and forwards. The crisis team had a separate room and, and a U-shape, uh, again, with lots of media inputs coming in from around the world so you could control the incident and have the, the most latest up-to-date information. There were set positions around that crisis team for, say, for example, legal, customer, 
customer relations, safety things, etc. And, and people would be trained to go into that location and they would have a playbook that they would use, sets of numbers they would use, sets of uh, responses they would use to respond to that crisis team. The gold command team was in a room separated from the crisis team. It was a, usually a small uh, room, maybe it would hold eight to 10 people and it had a dedicated area for, for doing press briefings. Now again, that team in the gold team, which primarily I led for about 10 years, would call in the resources required. Every crisis is not the same. Perhaps it's a cyber issue. Perhaps it's an airplane operational issue. Perhaps it's a regulatory issue. So the first duty of the of the gold commander is determine who he needs at the table. Make sure you have the best people available in the organization. Make sure you're clear on your responsibilities. Think about risk management and, and start to record what you're doing. Crucially, make sure your support team's in place. And by the support team, I mean the executive assistants, the people who are there to make sure that the administration was being carried out, the people who are there to make sure that notes were being taken, that food was being delivered, stuff that was important that you could focus on the main issue while the support team stepped in to help you. We had to activate that goal command uh, team a number of times. So, for example, the drone issue at Gatway Crane, there was um, uh, somebody deployed drones and, and basically shut the airport down. There was lots of disruption across the UK airspace that we had to deal with. So, again, it was a very good model which had been developed over many, many years. The, the crucial aspect that we really got to with Virgin was it's never perfect. So every time we had an incident, we did a massive wash up afterwards. We learned the lessons. We tweaked our procedures. We improved things day by day by day. And I do believe now that Virgin's team um, has one of the best crisis response uh, teams in the world. A uh, very, very professional team, very well honed, uh, very well organized. And I think they're world class, quite frankly. You've just touched on a couple of uh, very good lessons for anyone out there, Phil. One is make sure you've got the admin team to back you up whatever the situation is to get the food and drink in and also make sure the hotel rooms are booked for people who are needing to stay over and all of that not many people do that actually so it's great to hear that uh, is in play and also make sure that uh, you have the infrastructure to support the setup uh, which again a lot of people overlook do you want to talk us through any of the incidents that you can talk to us about uh, without getting yourself into trouble <laughs> over <laughs> over your time when you've been in the hot seat. Is there any of those you can sort of give us a bit of color yeah, on? Let, let, yeah, I'd love to give you uh, maybe two examples. One which was, was very short and sharp and perhaps the most intense period of, of activity I've had to deal with in the crisis. It only lasted four hours. And the second would be a more longer uh, crisis. So the first crisis that we, we talk about is... Um, and this, is, again, is in the public domain. It was the VS-43. It was an aircraft that departed out of Gatwick on the 29th of December on 2014. I remember it very well, actually, the day. And, and again, when, it, when the incident started, it was relatively routine. The aircraft took off. It lost hydraulics in one of its systems. Again, an airplane is designed to manage that, and the crew are, are, are trained to deal with that situation. That was about 11.44 in the morning, uh, or during the day, should I say. About an hour later, it had escalated. It was clear that the uh, aircraft had additional problems. The landing gear wouldn't come up. One of the landing gear on, on the right-hand side of the aircraft was like stuck in a half-up, half-down position. So it's actually better to be fully up or fully down, clearly, um, in a half-out position that was, that was more serious. And because of the loss of hydraulics, the aircraft had lost a number of flight control systems and braking systems. So they kept, the pilots were dealing with a, a very complex uh, and evolving situation. They declared a full emergency to go back into Gatwick. Now, eventually, I got a call at that point to, to advise me of this incident. And I was with my son at a nice rink in, in Windsor because it was Christmas. So we had some time off. 
uh, but I immediately knew from from the uh, early call that this was going to escalate and escalate quickly. So um, I managed to get my son home, uh, jumped in a car, and made way down to the crisis uh, team. Uh, at the same time, activating our CEO uh, Craig at the time, Craig Krieger. Uh, and advised him he needed to get to Gatwick because there was a likelihood this aircraft, when it landed, could have further problems, perhaps a full deployment of slides on, on the runway, perhaps passengers could potentially be injured, it could get more significant. The other thing that was very, very uh, apparent very quickly, this is a world of social media, of course, is this is now trending on Twitter, it's trending on, on social media, it's on the BBC News. I had a call from our, uh, our CFO at the time who was on holiday in Thailand and it was actually playing on the news in, uh, in his hotel. So it suddenly went from a relatively routine issue to a major crisis event that required management. Now the team, again, did a fantastic job. There was 447 passengers on board, uh, three flight crew and 15 cabin crew. They carried out all the appropriate procedures and protocols, managed to land the aircraft safely. There was lots of very dramatic pictures with, with sparks coming off the back of the, of the uh, aircraft as it landed. And uh, you know, a hugely distressed customer team uh, as we're trying to manage the, the situation. But Airplane landed safely about 15.45, so about four hours later. Uh, all of our processes have been put in place. All of the stakeholders have been activated. Our lines to take were ready. Our media approach was ready. We were out on the front foot at all times, uh, being able to put our story in place. And it's crucial that you have to have very clear objectives going into that situation. What are you trying to do? You can protect your customers. You can make sure your communications are being done appropriately. Are you communicating internally? Again, something that's vital that most people mix. You, you must communicate internally. There are thousands of people who are concerned about the crew, about the pilots, about our customers, of course, and they need the same level of information. That was a tremendously intense period, which was really, really well managed, but it was four hours, start to finish. And um, if I then move to a slightly different scenario, which was a hurricane event, Hurricane Irma in the Caribbean, and again, hurricane season happens in the Caribbean every year. So in, it, in itself, it's, it's an incident, not a crisis. And that uh, hurricane really came to our attention in the back end of August. We were at level one on the 31st of August, 2017. By about the 6th of September, we had escalated to amber. Now, because the ferocity and, and the intensity of the uh, hurricane had increased, it was clear it was going to cause huge damage across the Caribbean, uh, perhaps loss of life, certainly damage to property and certainly disruption to our flights and schedules and indeed our customers. Uh, and we stayed at Amber until the 15th September before we returned to business as usual. Now, over that period, we had 29 cancelled flights, uh, 10 overnight delays. And we also operated uh, 11 relief flights in and out of the Caribbean to bring medicines, humanitarian aid, building materials. Um, the the uh, Hurricane Irma went on to cause huge damage across the Caribbean and indeed into Florida. I remember there's a fantastic picture actually of, of um, we, we sent out relief flights to Orlando to recover our customers from Orlando. And this amazing picture of, of these three aircraft, which are literally just getting ahead of the storm as the storm approached Orlando. And we managed to secure those customers safely from Orlando. So again, a much more extended event. And the important thing to have at that point when I was gold commander was in the beginning, understanding that the, the storm could escalate and it would last some days is not to have just one team but to have three teams and make sure you rotated those teams and make sure people were rested and make sure people were able to move from one issue to another, make sure the handovers are appropriate. And again, the evolving lines to take throughout that period 
were so important to make sure they're accurate and referenced back to what are you trying to achieve here. First and foremost, look after your customers, make sure your communication is effective. And thirdly, make sure your company is protected, whether that is brand, uh, reputation, financial, because there's issues around loss of revenue, there's issues about repatriating customers, there's issues about making sure customers can travel again safely. So there's a huge amount to deal with over that period. And um, again, quite an extended crisis, quite an extended event. Uh, and again, the Virgin team did a fantastic job of stepping forward and, and doing the things to do really well, looking after our customers, looking after our people, looking after our business. So those are great examples, Phil. And uh, I encourage anyone who wants to to go and have a look at the YouTube clips uh, of particularly uh, the plane landing in Gatwick for the first example that you uh, just set out and there's some amazing footage also from inside the aircraft uh, of the way that the cabin crew uh, are operating uh, and the advice that they're giving to passengers in those times but let's just take you back you've been in the ice rink with your son for the first crisis that you talked us through there you're getting in a car and you're heading for gatwick what's your mindset what are the things that you're thinking about then yeah you know it's really i've often reflected on this and, and for me um the training really kicks in and i have done a, a number of uh, training exercises uh, about how to manage during a crisis but it's also that natural instinct uh, that i have to just be calm so I don't become excited. I literally almost have a roll of decks in my head of what do I need to do next? Right? I need to make sure this protocol is activated. This communication channel is activated. This is the stakeholder I need to speak to. These are the things that potentially could go wrong. So I go through a mental list in my head uh, to kind of make sure that I'm doing everything I need to do. And I tend not to become excited. In fact, I tend to actually regress and become very, very calm and very controlled. It's something that... Uh, when I've when we've done our wash up on, on, on post crisis events, people always say to me, you, you never seem flustered, Phil. And, and the reality is, I haven't been because that is, is what I'm trained to do. I have seen examples of people who actually go completely the other way and become overly excited and overly dramatic and overly emotional and, and they become tunnel vision in their thinking. And that's the worst place you can be. So for me, it was calm. Well, actually, my first priority and the one that gave me a bit of a challenge initially was how to help my son to get home because we're in Windsor. I live in Ascot. And I needed to move to Gatwick and I had this challenge of how do I move him to, to, to Ascot. And luckily, I saw a friend of mine at, at the ice rink who is a father of one of the kids who plays football, put him in a car with him. Fantastic. Done. So once that was done, that was actually my big crisis. How do I sort my son out? And the second was, <laughs> let's, let's get to Gatwick and let's make sure we can support the team. Post event is always uh, slightly different. I mean, because that was short and sharp. Uh, we met the we met the crew who came off the aircraft. Everyone has that uh, huge adrenaline rush, and then there's relief, and then of course trying to contact their their, their, um, their relatives and loved ones because it's it's now literally on on BBC News at six o'clock. Uh, so for cabin crew, for example, our pilots, their 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 friends and their family know that they were on that trip. It was a special trip on the 29th of December, uh, and of course everyone's ringing and calling, and and it's it's quite emotional. So um, so for me, post event, I always sat back reflected I, I usually write notes immediately because you, you got that uh, most recent image in your head of what's happened so get your notes down quickly what was good what was bad what would you change what would you improve so uh, again I don't want to sound blase about it but the training really kicks in and that's why the training is so important not just for me but for every single person in a crisis event because when that adrenaline kicks in you need people to remain calm be controlled be clear on their objectives and watch the communications. I think it's, it's the most important aspect of any crisis, I believe, today is actually watching the communications. So few people, Phil, in a crisis set objectives for how they're, how they're going to get through this and what the priority is for getting through this. In that situation, 
what are your objectives? Well, I, I've got in my head what I, what I call my three C's, uh, which helps to guide me. One is customer. If you make every decision with the customer in mind, you're not going to make a bad decision. It's always going to be a good decision. First, of course, is safety, making sure the customer is safe, making sure they're well looked after, do the right thing for our customer. Don't worry too much about the cost initially because you can recover that. The second is communication. And, and again, it's communicate, communicate, communicate. So in my mind at all times, I've, I've managed the issue for the customer. I've got the issue on communication. We always had a comm cell. It's always the area post event that there is the most focus on because things happen quickly and therefore, um, you know, it, it evolves and changes. You need to be on top of it and you need to be fast and you have a protocol for signing off your communications. Who is going to sign them off? When are they going to be signed off? When are they going to be released, et cetera, et cetera. And the last big C for me, of course, is I call it company, but in that I, I wrap up brand, reputation, investor risk, long-term damage to the company. Are you making sure that when in protecting your customers, in managing communications, you've got one eye on the entity, the company, and making sure that that entity is protected. There's neither an existential risk through this issue or the, the key stakeholders who are involved in, in the company outside. So investors, as I say, uh, or indeed the press are fully informed, fully at the speed, so nobody is surprised by the event. So those three keep me grounded through, throughout, and it's, it served me very, very well. Uh, I'm sure there are plenty of other models that people may use, but but um, from my own experience, um, once you've done the customer, once you've made sure the customer's looked after, communication. That's the one I go to time and time again. That's the area that needs the most attention. It's it's fascinating to hear you say that. And I think that's a really good lesson for anyone listening to this podcast, Phil, about all the different elements which have a role to play in a crisis. Um, we've both been in that room when crises have happened. And it's always fascinating to think back and trying to remember what we do when it is going to the situation where you're thinking, this is it. This is the moment that will either make this crisis go away or make it worse. What's the one moment in that crisis that we're talking about where the landing gear has not come down in the right way and you're coming back to Gatwick? Do you remember as the one moment which really is the make or break moment for the crisis? Well, the make or break for me really, uh, it's, it's on that YouTube video, is as the aircraft's coming in to land, we're listening to the uh, pilot, Dave, the lovely guy, uh, we could hear that he was very much in control, very much had the, the situation in hand. But at the same time, the airplane, as it's coming in to land, is now surrounded by fire trucks and ambulances and police and and, and Gatwick Airport getting ready to shut down because, you know, they know this airplane is going to land on the runway. They, they could be further damage to the airplane, they could be damaged to the runway, et cetera. And the moment the truth, of course, when that airplane landed and settled and it settled in a stable position, albeit one wing was massively up in the air and one wing was down, it was, it was, it was very much at an angle uh, and, the, and the engines had not hit the, the runway and caused further damage and the airplane came to a stop safely and we were able to deplane the passengers. That was the moment I thought, right, this issue is now resolved. Now we've gone from a situation which could escalate even further with injuries uh, and, and God forbid some, you know, something more serious to one which is now a manageable situation. We, yes, we know we caused disruption at the airport. Yes, we know we have an airplane to deal with. All of that can be dealt with in time. And now our clear focus was on recovering those customers, getting them back onto their holidays, making sure everyone was um, looked after in the right way and making sure again that our communications well, that we were on top of it because there was just a phenomenal media interest. That was the point for me, that single point when that airplane landed and came to a stop. Then there was a sigh of relief. It was almost, okay, we can go home now. <laughs> the team can deal with this now. 
<laughs> we're in good shape. You can get home to that glass of wine. To uh, chill indeed, indeed. So, Phil, when you're thinking about these crises, who are the people that you want around you? What sort of qualities do they have to get through the crisis situation? Yeah, well, again, every situation requires a different skill. Um, there, are, there are clearly core skills and core specialists you need, but I always think about the situation and making sure you have the right people in the room. Uh, for example, cyber is a great one. You re- there's not really much point in having somebody who's a, a legal expert if you've got a cyber threat. You need, you need somebody from the IT team. The most important thing is to really try and have trained people, people who've been through simulations, people who've been through these exercises, who are not starstruck by the event and can come in and fill out their role in. They know that they have a specific action to carry out. They carry out that action. They're not afraid to speak up. They must be able to speak up and make sure their voice is heard in an appropriate way. So professional, calm, trained, and clearly the best people you can get in the business at that time. And again, the protocol in, in, uh, in Virgin, when I, when I worked in Virgin, was that the goal commander, if he called on an individual, that person dropped what they were doing and came. Uh, but quite frankly, Gavin, I always find it slightly different, bizarrely in a, in a crisis, particularly if it happens during the week, everyone wants to be involved so you're, you're so the trick is actually to is is to try and stop people being involved and make sure it is the core team it is people who are trained and, and again the protocol in that scenario was that certain areas would be uh, non-accessible to to general public to uh, you know passing traffic to, to people who want to come to help the, 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 i kind of call them the do-gooders who, who really want to come in at that point and and, and have an opinion and, and and really be helpful but not necessarily at the right time so um that's what I try to focus on. Uh, and of course, at times, uh, you know, these incidents don't happen Monday to Friday, nine to five. Uh, they'll happen uh, off site. They'll, ha- they'll, they'll happen out of hours. And therefore, you have to have the people that are available. We had a standard uh, call out list for people. Um, so we always knew who your silver commander was, your gold commander was, your key personnel were. Uh, and they were always ready and, and to step in and be activated at any, at any moment. Phil, when you're sort of thinking back over your career and the crises that you've faced, etc., is there any moment where you think that was terrible advice that someone's given to me? That's something I just think is the worst thing you could have said in that situation. Because sometimes when we look back, we look at all the good moments. But what's the worst advice you've been given? Ah, uh, that's a really great question. I don't, I don't think I've been given. Bad advice, but I'll give you a, 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 an example of where I saw probably the worst, uh, probably a very poor decision. And that was, um, we were doing a simulation actually. And the simulation was that we had an aircraft that was coming across from New York uh, and it literally disappeared from radar. And the scenario had been built up that there was terrorist activity in, in the US and, and there was potentially terrorist activity in, in the UK. So arguably a very logical conclusion would be this aircraft has been attacked and therefore the airplane, we need to activate a, a lost aircraft scenario. And I was an observer on this particular incident. And what happened is the team got themselves to a position where they thought that's that is what's happened. Okay, it has been a terrorist attack, and they proceeded to ground every single airplane in 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 Virgin's fleet around the world. Clearly, this was a simulation, by the way. The problem with that is you've now actually manifestly increased the size of the problem. You've now got forty-five airplanes worth of people in different locations around the world with no hotels, nowhere to go, no clear understanding of whether it was a terrorist issue or not no clear means of, of, of uh, communicating with those customers, flight crew out of position, no ability to recover the aircraft. So what seemed like a very sensible, good decision to make everything safe at that point in time was actually a poor decision because it massively increased the risk and shifted the risk profile. Of course, the, the simulation was that 
it was meant to look like a terrorist incident. It wasn't. It was lost communication. The radio had stopped working. So the airplane then came back into view uh, 45 minutes later, at which point, of course, all of the other aircraft went out of position. So it's, again, it's one of those areas where it's important in a crisis, and we learned a lot through that, by the way. It's important to be able to stand back and think and be calm enough to be controlled, understand your objective. What are you trying to do? You're looking after your customers, not just the customers on that airplane, but all of your customers. You're thinking about your company, your reputation. Think about the actions and what will potentially happen if you go forward. It doesn't require hours and hours and hours of analysis. It just requires a few moments of reflection and thoughtfulness to make sure that you're doing the right thing. And I guess with that in mind, by the way, um, and the advice I give everybody who works in operations or anybody who works in these scenarios, it, the reality is you're making decisions with, at best, 80% of the information. You're always missing something. The worst thing you can do is not make a decision. There is a point in time we have to move it forward, make decisions, make good, solid, clear decisions. Don't wait for every single piece of information because you'll wait too long and, and, and the, the time will pass you by. So that, that's I mean, my, my personal reflection that that's... Um, I think the advice I've been given by many people has been very different. It's all been very, very good. I've only seen that one scenario where I thought that's an overreaction that would have caused a, a far bigger problem. What's your crisis mantra, you personally, Phil? I mean, you've, you've, you've been a leader in loads of these situations, but what's your personal crisis mantra? Well, as I go back to what I said um, earlier, it really is customer communication company. Uh, under that, there's a number of different headings, but I keep that in my head at all times. Am I doing the right thing for the customer? Am I communicating sufficiently internally and externally? Am I looking after the company? Am I taking the right uh, decisions to protect the interests of the company? And that just grounds me each time because there's very little outside of that. Everything kind of bundles in underneath one of those headings. But quite often people will get focused on one or the other of those elements and lose sight of the importance of making sure the company is protected you could over-index on communication or you could over-index on making sure, you know, customer actions uh, are, are diligently applied but not communicated. So it's, it's important to me to keep those three in balance at all times. And I just, it just, it, it kind of resonates in my head all the time. When the crisis is a sustained one, one that's going on for more than four hours, going on for a number of days, what's your go-to place to sort of, think about things to take a moment out? Well, I, I actually follow a, a scheme which is, again, served me very well throughout most of my life, which is I, I do in any scenario, in any day, including a crisis, 25 minutes work, five minutes reflection. Um, it helps to ground you. So you, if you focus on one thing for 25 minutes, step back, think, five minutes rest, just calm down and you know, have a cup of tea, have a cup of coffee, walk out of the room, talk to somebody. And it helps to re-energize the brain, helps you to move forward. So that's worked for me for, 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 for many years on, on all different levels. I think it's important, again, and maybe it's, again, part of my upbringing, part of my experience of having dealt with these issues many, many times, that I now understand that when crises evolve, it never happens like the movies. It's not quick. <laughs> it generally is slow. You, you make a decision and you put that decision into place in an action. It could take 30 minutes, 40 minutes, 50 minutes, an hour, two hours for an action to be completed. So you can't get excited at that point. You know and trust the person you'll be doing, whatever they're doing. So you do have time to reflect and you do have time to think. And that, that's what works for me, Gav. Works for you. And a cup of tea? That's your go-to? Cup, cup, cup of tea. Cup of tea. That's my go-to place. 
Phil, that's fantastic. We'll end on that brilliant note. Um, thank you so much for talking us through your thoughts today and your experience. You're a fantastic guy with brilliant, brilliant stories to tell. And I appreciate you giving up some of your time today to allow us to listen to those stories and learn from them. Phil, thank you very much. Well, wasn't that a fantastic interview with Phil? Um, I'm back with Karen and Gary and I to uh, chat through some elements of that. Now, Karen, Phil talked about the three C's being his key crisis mantra. I think his three C's were customers, communication, and company. What's the crisis mantra that you've seen work most effectively in your experience? Yeah, Phil's three C's really resonated for me as I was listening to him speak to that. Uh, it really reminded me, you know, in the last couple of years, I've been involved in two major oil spill responses. And part of our response, we followed what we called the pair principle. And it was very similar in that operational response, thinking about people, environment, assets, and reputation. And so when it comes to people, that focus on safety and ensuring people were safe, customers, stakeholders, environment, mitigating or minimizing our impact on the environment as a result of the incident, assets, protecting our assets of the company, and then reputation, communicating how you're doing all of those things. And so to me, the part that really spoke to me was communications was kind of layered in at all aspects of the crisis response. And so you know, when we're doing things to keep people safe, when we're minimizing the impacts to the environment, protecting our assets, all of those communications go a long way to help in an effective response and to protect reputation. In many cases, when we think about it, you know, it's important that we are communicating uh, throughout the response, because if we don't tell our story, if we don't establish ourselves as a source of information, somebody is going to do it for us. So I think overall, his approach really did speak to me. And what about you, Guy? Well, I think um, the, the, one of the important lessons from Phil's mantra is that he put customer first. And I think that the lesson for, for people to take is that the most important audience that you might need to speak to isn't necessarily the loudest at the time. I think one of the things that we often see with people, particularly if there is a storm brewing on social media or they're getting a lot of incoming from traditional journalists, is that they there is a natural inclination uh, to tailor the response to the crisis to that media or to social media and to deal with that. And actually, the first thing that you should understand is who are those audiences who have the ability to fundamentally impact your ability to operate? And that is where you need to make sure your uh, communications is going first. I actually liked Phil's earlier mantra that he said at the beginning of his interview, which is uh, there's always something you can do uh, and that that uh, enabled him to, to approach these crises without getting overly stressed. One final thing uh, from me that jumped out at Phil's interview, unrelated to his mantras, but it was very good to see him um, flag it up because I think it's often uh, underplayed. And that was the importance at the very outset of putting in place an effective administration function. We know that crises can rumble on for a number of days. And even with leaders like Phil, uh, they're going to have to sleep at some point and they're going to have to hand over the decisions that have been made, uh, the strategies that are in place uh, and the operations that are ongoing to another team. And we have all seen 
crisis response units come unstuck at that moment when actually they have not got in place proper capture of the decisions that have been made, the actions that are being taken and what's happening next. Uh, and one thing I would recommend to, to businesses who are going to be in that situation is when you are testing your crisis protocols and when you are looking at simulations, spend a couple of hours specifically testing the handover, particularly if you have operations on different countries on different sides of the Atlantic, the handover is where you can fall apart in this sort of situation. And it is telling that someone as experienced as Phil highlighted right at the outset to have somebody there who is actually taking proper notes, recording decisions uh, and helping to pass that on. I think that's been one of the big learnings as well from the COVID crisis that we all saw it as a crisis to begin with, but senior leadership teams didn't necessarily put the sustainability practices in place to protect their sanity because they were needed. They were on call all the time in the opening months of this, and then it became six months, and then it became nine months, and that's pretty hard to take. And we saw some really difficult things happen in organizations several months in simply, I think, because the top team were shattered and they just weren't in the right place. And I think that's a really good point to pull out, Gary. What's also really important is Phil's point, as you say, of doing something. I was once involved uh, advising a ministry of tourism in the Middle East about 15 years ago when a bomb went off, uh, tragically in their country, a terrorist bomb went off. And I, you know, it's one of those classic moments. As soon as it comes in, you're the adrenaline's shooting through you. I grabbed my uh, travel bag and my passport and headed to the airport to get over there to advise them on the ground. Flew in overnight, uh, arrived to the Ministry of Tourism, five o'clock in the morning, no one there, waited for an hour, finally got in and sat down with the senior people, the Minister of Tourism himself and the chairman of the Tourist Authority, uh, who hated Western advisors telling them what to do. And I'd recently written the whole crisis book for the, uh, the country. And I asked them what they had done. You know, the crisis has happened. What have you done? And the uh, chairman of the Ministry of Tourism looked at me and said, son, in this country, I wrote the book on crisis management. And I said, great, tell me what you've done. And he signaled what he had done by lifting the phone off the hook on the desk and saying, that is what we've done. So Phil says you need to do something. That was their approach. That's not a great mantra. I'm glad Phil and all his cohort were doing something because it's way better than that. Uh, Thanks very much for joining us, Karen and Gary. Hopefully people have enjoyed the um, first podcast uh, of White Swan, the crisis podcast, uh, and we'll be back for more soon. Well, that was White Swan, the crisis podcast. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please like and subscribe for more at your usual podcast platform. We'll be back soon with more chat from the world of crises. Until then, please don't have nightmares because the proper preparation will ensure that whatever is thrown at you, you'll be fine. White Swan is brought to you by Hanover Communications and its global crisis network. To find out more, please visit hanovercoms.com. That's Hanover, H-A-N-O-V-E-R, comms, C-O-M-M-S dot com. Com.